Hey everyone, Angelique Carson here, your trusty host. Like you, I'm drinking from the fire hose right now. I tried to take a vacation a couple weeks ago and enjoy Maine where I'm staying for the summer. But I have to say, is vacation even worth it? Like there's the prep you try and do to mitigate the pain of coming back from vacation. Then there's the hours or days that you don't actually use the vacation because work priorities interrupt. Then there's the coming back from vacation and digging out for two weeks. Like, I know, I hate to say this, but I'm sort of inclined to just work through it. In more exciting news, I will be in New York City next week. I'm hosting a dinner for Privacy Peeps, so if you're in the city these days and actually, you know, going into work uh, downtown or wherever and want to come hang out, talk privacy nerd stuff, shoot me a note. Listen, this is a weird segue, but um, a thing about children, and this will make sense in a second. I will make funny faces at any squirming child on a metro to get them to smile. I will hold your baby on my hip for as long as you'll let me. I will make chit-chat with as many of the runny-nosed kids on a rope walking down my D.C. neighborhood street as we'll chat back. Do you know what I'm talking about? It looks like a moving caterpillar with kids for legs, and they just walk down the street with the kids holding a handle on the rope. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's the actual best. I digress. My point is that I absolutely love children, and in fact, I'm told I once was one. But I don't have children, and therefore tend to be less engaged with children's issues, including privacy. But I realize that doesn't make sense, because there's a whole lot of people making moves on protecting the children right now including the FTC, several U.S. lawmakers, the Irish DPC, the UK ICO. And I kind of feel sheepish discussing this issue because I don't, I don't know my stuff, or I didn't. I thought maybe you feel the same way. So I dialed up Lauren Merck. She's at the FPF. She is a Youth and Education Policy Council. And so today was fun for me because she taught me what I need to know to survive a happy hour chat on the latest in kids' privacy. Before we get to that chat, as always, a quick rundown of the latest privacy news. I think I can do this in two and a half minutes. Sound engineer, Chris, would you please start my timer now? Speaking of children, TechCrunch reports we could hear from Ireland's Data Protection Commission as soon as within the next two weeks on its Instagram case. The DPC opened its inquiry in 2020 after complaints that Instagram was leaking the contact information of minors by letting them set up business accounts on its platform, which made their contact information public by default. As you know, the GDPR has been saying for years now, listen, you got to do privacy by design and default, and I'm super not kidding when I say you got to apply that standard to protect the kids. It's not clear what the penalty may be for any declared violation if it's declared Instagram breached the GDPR, but the case has now gone through the European Data Protection Board, and the decision is expected the last week of August or first week of September. So keep you posted on that. The big news of the day, Privacy Twitter, TM, is losing its collective mind this morning after drooling for a couple days over news that the FTC was going to drop a proposed rulemaking announcement. The agency said today it's going to build rules around what it terms, quote, commercial surveillance, end quote or the practice of hoovering up data, sometimes sensitive, and then using that in all kinds of naughty ways. Obviously, we've got a long way to go. We've got public comments and subsequent drafts and votes, but it's a big deal. It's also important to note that Alvaro Bedoya, now an FTC commissioner, has deep knowledge on the impacts of surveillance, especially its impact on vulnerable populations, and I expect the FTC's work on this to be well-informed. I try to say that without talking like the Bedoya fangirl that I am, but I stand. Lastly, Bloomberg reported this week that Republican Federal Trade Commissioner Noah Phillips said he plans to step down this fall, which will hand an even bigger majority to progressive chair Lena Kahn to advance her agenda. 
Phillips told the agency last week about his plan to leave, a move that may require him to recuse himself from some cases, the Bloomberg report states. He said he's leaving to spend more time with his family, but then at the end he added a slight dig when he said one factor was, quote, his sense that other commissioners weren't open to discussion and compromise, end quote. We've heard rumblings that not everyone is getting along at the FTC these days, so maybe this is related or maybe he just does want to make it home for dinner more often. Who knows? Okay, on to today's episode. As I promised, Lauren Merck is going to give us a crash course on what's happening in children's privacy and why. Okay, just a warning, and I can't make this shit up. While we were talking, my puppy started losing his mind. This is, you know, we work from home, things happen. When I went to address the chaos, I realized he had sniffed out two turkeys, a mommy and a baby, like actual turkeys, who were staring at him from my mother's garage roof. Like, first of all, my mom's house, at which I'm staying this summer, like I said, is in suburban Maine. We're not, like, out in the sticks. Second, it was very alarming because both Lauren and I, poor Lauren, who I had to interrupt her brilliant thought to say, can you hold on, there's turkeys. We forgot that turkeys can fly. So there was a period of great confusion and concern at the sight of the two of them staring at us from on high. I could have cut the situation out of the podcast, but how often does your chat get interrupted by urban birds? I posted the pic on my Twitter last night, if you want the visual. As always, please help me reach earlobes by sharing your thoughts on the show to your social media networks. I'd love to hear what you think, what ideas lit you up a little bit, what you disagreed with. Let's start a combo. The sharing really helps me out, and I appreciate you. Talk soon. Love ya. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in the children's privacy landscape these days. And um, one reason I wanted to talk to you about all this, I should say, is that it does seem like it's a space that's in flux and that we're seeing some, um, depending on where you stand on some of the issues, I guess, some progress. So I want to just check in with you as someone who really knows this stuff. Um, how would you kind of characterize what's going on broadly? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, privacy is a really hot space these days. You know that. And youth privacy is no exception. Um We've seen a lot going on in the last year, and we can talk about that more if you'd like, um, about some of those specifics. But I mean, if we want to just talk about why we're seeing this, you know, influx of child privacy news, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, first, there's this growing role of the internet and emerging technologies in young people's lives, right? And this isn't new, but it was definitely increased when the pandemic hit. And this is, of course, true when schools went remote and education technology and online platforms became one of the integral ways that children learned and went to school. But it's also true when you think about kids' social lives and their connections with friends. And, you know, we went from seeing kids maybe playing video games with with one another from different homes or streaming a movie. Um, and that was one way of kind of interacting with each other. But at the beginning of the pandemic, especially in those early years, it became, you know, the main and most safest um, and the safest way to do those things. So it really became the way um, that kids were able to stay in touch and stay connected with their friends. And I also think uh, it's interesting because, right, like COVID imposed some choices or non-choices upon us that we didn't see coming, right? Because, you know, where maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, but like maybe in the past, if we had said, hey, we're going to have, we're going to start allowing uh, some 
relaxations on children's privacy in order to help them learn by, you know, installing things on their devices or having them on camera all the time. Like we might have said, well, is this a good idea? But when COVID happened, it was like, well, do we keep them learning or not? And you sort of had to agree, right, to whatever we we were going to do to allow that to happen. Right, right. Those are really good points. And I mean, I think, you know, there's the other part of this is that, you know, there's been this long standing understanding that um, the law needs to afford certain protections and safeguards to this younger and more impressionable audience. You know, kids and kids and teens are, are different than other consumers. And that's not, you know, unique to privacy law. That's there are all kinds of areas of law that treat minors differently. But in privacy law, you know, information about children is often viewed as being a sensitive category of data. And that's why we have laws like COPPA and other longstanding regimes. Um, so I think like the combination of this understanding that we need to treat kids a little differently and afford them, you know, additional protections paired with, you know, this increasingly large role that technology was playing, um, has been playing in the lives of children for a while now, but especially during the pandemic, it kind of makes, you know, kids and, and student privacy an area that's top of mind for, for a lot of people. What uh, what got you into working in this space? I mean, it's always interesting when people say, well, how'd you get working in privacy? And everyone sort of has this roundabout way that they fell into it, you know, uh, myself included. But um, especially in, in, did you specifically want to go into children's privacy or did you get into privacy and then children's was just sort of like what you what you wound up with? Yeah, I'd say it's a little bit of both. So I got into privacy in my last year of law school um, and I really enjoyed it. And um I find the area so interesting because it's a really old body of law, but, you know, it predates the internet. Privacy law isn't new, but because of the way technology has advanced, you know, there are all these new ways that the law needs to be applied. And and in some cases, new laws need to be made. And um, so I I was seeking internships and I eventually found myself um, working as a contractor at FPF for the youth and education team. And that was really my first exposure to um, youth and education privacy. And I was really hooked because, you know, it's the same kind of issues that you're thinking about um, when you're talking about just general consumer privacy. But there are unique protections afforded to kids because, like I was saying, there's this, like, understanding that um, young people are a little bit more impressionable and maybe need certain protections and should be treated a little bit differently under the law when it comes to um, their data and how they use the Internet. So I thought that was really interesting. I think um, it's really cool that this whole, you know, this generation of of kids growing up, this makes me sound old, um, but this generation, they, they're growing up with more technology than I did. And that also, you know, you know, they know about how some of these technologies work better than I did. And, um, they really are, you know, going to be on the internet from the time they, they enter this world, um, and, and throughout their lives. So, um, I think that's really cool. There's a lot of really neat ways technology and, and privacy, um, technology can be used, but you know, there's also just all kinds of new privacy implications. And that also really attracted me to the area. Um, because I think it's a great group to kind of, um, work, work for and kind of, um, think about when we, when we consider these things. Oh yeah, I mean any work and I uh I've said many times privately and publicly how much I, you know, love FPF and uh having been 
afforded the the option to have a, a desk there for a while and hear all the cool like work that's happening behind the scenes. I used to overhear some of, uh, I think your predecessor, Amelia Vance's uh, sort of uh, problems and pitfalls that she was dealing with and navigating the space. I also think it's interesting, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking it's in some ways, like you see these kids out at restaurants and they're like three years old and they're swiping on the phone or they're like operating the iPad. And so in some ways they are more tech savvy than maybe like their grandparents or even their parents, but they also don't know what's what enough yet to know those hidden harms. And even as adults, we don't always recognize the implications of what we might be choosing online, you know? So it's kind of like, in some ways they're more sophisticated and in other ways they are certainly more vulnerable. But it's also interesting because they're they're one, I'm sure, you know, I'm trying to think of our other examples, but they're certainly not the only group in this case, but it's like this really interesting group where they can't advocate for themselves in terms of the laws that we're trying to hand down related to them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like we're kind of creating this, uh, creating a body of law for a, a bit of a voiceless population, although I'm sure it would be hilarious to sit down a bunch of kids and say, what do you know about data privacy <laughs> and hear their answers? Um, but they're not able to go testify and weigh in, really, you know, mm-hmm. and so you kind of have to. Um, but I think one of the things about kids, too, is everyone has, you know, everyone's got a grandchild or a daughter or a niece or a nephew. And so ostensibly, everyone's got the kids, uh, the children's best interests at heart. But uh, I guess we'll see what the outcome is. <laughs> What's happening in schools right now, one of the spaces that I think is really interesting that I don't know enough about is what's happening with schools. Um, We've alluded to this a little bit, but especially when we're talking about the technology that's being deployed and um, third-party vendors. What can you tell us about what's going on in that space right now? Yeah, um, so for sure. EdTech is not really a new area, but it's definitely, you know, getting a lot of popularity. I I had EdTech when I was in high school, um, but now it's, you know, really something that is in every classroom. And um, these this kind of technology refers to education technology, um, platforms and different programs that are being used to enhance the learning for kids, right? And, you know, I think it's important to have a better understand or to have a general understanding about how third parties are able to access student data, specifically at tech vendors, because it's not, you know, it's not this space that isn't being governed. It's, it's very highly governed and regulated. Um, and there are a lot of laws that, that try, that have tried to address, um, you know, the education technology being used in the classroom and, and what those data protections are. Um, so the, and is that, Lauren, is that is that under FERPA? Were you yeah, yeah. That? Are those laws under FERPA? Yeah. Okay. So the Family yeah. Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which is FERPA, um, it obviously it regulates access, it, schools' access to um, and their use of student records, right? And it's something that schools need to be concerned about and need to to comply with. And this is an old law. This is way. This happened. This was enacted way before. Um, we had computers in every school, um, let alone in every classroom and in every student's um, backpacks. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, schools have always collected a lot of information about kids. So it makes sense that we have we've had a longstanding privacy law um, to address this and make sure that that information is, is kept safe. Now, under VERPA, there's this there's a lot of exceptions for um, different reasons that um student information can be shared or beyond, you know, the, the people in the school. And one of those exceptions is the school official exception. 
where third parties, which often include ad tech vendors, can get access to FERPA-covered data if necessary for the third party to provide some sort of legitimate educational service. Um, but that's only one part. So that's the federal law. But there's also tons of state laws that... Um, that govern these things. So California has SOPIPA and a lot of states have um, adopted similar laws, which actually, um, you know, holds the ed tech companies accountable for making sure they're not using data improperly. Because before, because again, FERPA is um, a law that's concerned with schools, not necessarily vendors. Um, but there's also contract law plays a huge role in this because, if schools have to abide by FERPA, what are they going to do? They're going to make sure that any contract they enter into with a third party at tech vendor or any other um, service provider is going to, you know, be able to be compliant with FERPA. They don't want to contract with a provider that's going to use data improperly because then, you know, that's, that doesn't look good for them either. Um and then there's also, you know, COPPA, which is something that edtech vendors generally will have to comply with. Um, and we can talk more about COPPA and, and some of the, the amendments in COPPA 2.0 later if you want. But, um, yeah, so there, it's a very regulated space. I think, um, I think that the issue is, you know, there are sometimes bad actors in this space and there are um, sometimes where data can be used improperly. And, and we've seen that in, in recent years, unfortunately. And, um, you know, that's where that's where we start to get problematic. It gets problematic. But when used properly and when schools have the proper um, vetting techniques in in um in use to make sure that they're contracting with good vendors. And when vendors um, recognize the great responsibility it is to maintain data on children and play this role in their education. Um, and when, you know, states have laws in place to kind of hold vendors accountable, like when all of these things happen, there's a lot of potential here for EdTech to do a lot of good um, and really enhance students' education. So would you say because FERP has been around for so long, and even though this technology is emerging, because schools have an understanding of what their responsibilities are when they do engage uh, these vendors, we don't have to think about this space as sort of some wild, wild west in the midst of emerging technology. Like, by and large, there's compliance and understanding of compliance obligations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair assumption or a, a fair assessment. I think... Um, this is an old law and schools devote a lot of resources and time thinking about how to um, make sure they're contracting with good vendors. And most, I would, I don't know about most, but a lot of schools, if not most, have some sort of vetting process um, or and that's usually at the district level, really, when um, they're thinking about, okay, what kind of apps should we um, be be using in the classroom. And like, it's a highly regulated space and vendors need to be concerned about it, but also schools and districts. So I think that there's a lot of, and, and I think there's a general understanding that, um, you know, kids' data is really sensitive. And so no one really wants to um, be the be in a situation where they're abusing that or um, it doesn't look good for them. It's also just, you know, not ethical. <laughs> 
So as you're talking, I was just thinking about this story that I read recently. I think I included it uh, in a newsletter that I was writing, but there was a software called Gaggle that the school was using to actually sort of spy on kids to see if they were paying enough attention uh, in remote learning. And uh, unwittingly, some of the children plugged their smartphones into the computer, uh, which uploaded the cell phone data onto their laptop, which stored it in the cloud. Uh which Gaggle then saw and reported to school administrators that the teens were sending each other nudes. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is one of those unforeseen uh, risks that we see to youths who are using technologies that they might not understand in terms of where those data, where the data flows uh, and what what's picking up the data. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, are we seeing uh, any like unforeseen or now acknowledged harms when it comes to some of this ed tech? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of laws that regulate in this space, so that's a good thing. But there are certainly instances where there are bad actors or improper uses of student data, and it's kind of resulted in, um, you know, some some harms. So a few examples come to mind. The first um, would be the increase in student monitoring software that we're seeing in classrooms. Um, this software is relatively new, but it's gaining a lot of popularity. And it raises a lot of questions about privacy implications, especially when it's used maybe when um, students aren't in the classroom, um, you know, or, or not in a lecture. Um, and there are a lot of critiques of this kind of monitoring. And I would encourage folks to take a look at FPF's self-harm monitoring paper that we released last year to learn more. Um, but this kind of type of monitoring is especially problematic when it's being used for disciplinary purposes or for purposes where the information gathered is being used against students. Um, you know, it's one thing to say that the software can be used as an intervention if it's in, to help a student who is in need, right? But it's another to say it's um, it's another use altogether to use the, the information against them and to have it result in disciplinary action. So I think schools really need to be mindful not only about what technology they're adding to the classroom, but also how they're using it and if they're using it in a, in a equitable and appropriate and privacy, um, you know, conscious way. Yeah. Like if my teen is sending nudes, I want to know about it, but I might not want the school to know about it. You know what I mean? It's a good point. Yeah. And that also is a tricky balance with, you know, where, where is the school's role, the school's role, role in this and then the parents role. And then you've got online education. I could talk probably for an entire hour about that. So yeah, exactly. Where's the line? And who's watching and who should be watching, mm -hmm. you know? Okay, because we are cramped for time, even though I want to have you talk about that for an hour. Um, let's talk a little bit, if we can, uh, about some of these children's codes that we're seeing come out. Um, what? Why are we seeing this? If the laws that we have on the books are pretty decent, what do we need codes for? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll add that, you know, FERPA is a really longstanding law, and I feel like people have a good idea of how to comply with it. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. And that also really only applies to education privacy. So there's, there's this whole other area of youth and education privacy, which is um, the privacy of kids as consumers. And that's where we start talking about COPPA. And that's when we start talking about um, the two bills that advanced, that recently advanced out of committee um, at the federal level, COSA and COPPA 2.0. Um, and, and of course, you know, the children's code and, and similar pieces of legislation. So, um, 
I think the children's code is in, is out of California, right? So, um, there, there's this growing, um, age appropriate design code trend we're seeing. And that the one that gets a lot of popularity is out of the UK. So not in the U S but is actually a law, you know, it's, it's in effect. Um, now California introduced two pieces of legislation this year that are getting a lot of attention in the kids um, privacy space. And that is the California age appropriate design code. Um, And then, and that is modeled after the UK age appropriate design code. And then there's also um, the um, blanking on the name. It is called the, the social media duty to children act. So with the age appropriate design code, um, which like I said, is, was introduced in the UK. Um, Ireland has a similar regime and then there are, um, you know, similar laws that are, or legislate pieces of legislation throughout, you know, that are being introduced all over the world. But in the U S we've only seen it introduced in one state, which is, um, California. And it is, I think it really speaks to this trend we're seeing about calls for privacy by design and interfaces that really make the best interest of the children a priority. Um, but there's a second bill that was in California that's also worth noting, and that's the Social Media Duty to Children Act, which would establish a liability standard that could give regulators an avenue to sue platforms for being addictive to children. Um both of these bills are really novel, and um, they're arguably some of the most interesting and potentially consequential pieces of state ledge that we're seeing in the youth and privacy space. Um, but they're getting a lot of support, and um, I think that's notable. So both of the bills passed unanimously out of assembly um, at the end of June, and they're, pen- they're pending in the state Senate. The deadline for them to move forward would be um, August 31st, so we'll see if anything happens in the next few weeks. Um and I'll give a quick plug for my colleague, Chloe Altieri, who has been following the California legislation um, quite a bit. And she um, has a lot of great resources and, and knowledge on this. So I'd encourage people to check out her work. Um, but between the age appropriate design code, which is very focused on, OK, what's age appropriate? And then the the social media duty to children act, which is kind of more in this realm of online safety, um, I think those kind of encompass the two major trends we're seeing in youth and education privacy um, right now. So not only protecting kids' data and teens' data, but also making sure they're having a positive and a healthy and, um, you know, safe experience online. Yeah, classic California leading the nation (laughs) on that stuff, right? How do you, can I ask you, do we, do you know, how do we decide if a, if um, an app or a service or a product is geared towards addicting children to it? How do you know how we quantify that? Um, so that is a question that I've also asked myself. Um, I have not dug into some of the nuances of the bill close enough to be able to speak on that, but I think that is one of the questions everyone's asking. Um, they have a whole list of okay, here's what would qualify, and here is. Um, here are instances that would make it reasonable to assume it could be addictive, but it would certainly be a very, um, it would be a new approach unlike anything we've seen um, in the U.S. at the state level. So a, a similar piece of legislation we're seeing at the federal level is, is COSA, um, the Kids Online Safety Act, and that has uh, quite a few provisions about algorithmic um, recommendation systems. And there mm. seems to be a push 
to helping kids and parents of kids understand how these systems are used. And um, I think that kind of goes hand in hand, which with the age appropriate design code stuff is making it not only, you know, not only appropriate for the age group, but also help them kind of develop some digital literacy um, in the, in the process. Lauren, the dogs are barking because there's literally turkeys on the roof what? of our garage. I have to show you. What I've is Maine? I know. Wait, what a mean? place. Oh, my gosh. That's what my dog is crazy about. <laughs> I've never seen them up on the roof before. How it's did hilarious. they get up? I didn't know turkeys could fly, to be totally honest. I thought they were quite little I Yeah, they must have, like, I think, I don't even know. All right. So we mentioned a little bit about, uh, you mentioned Poza. But let's talk a little bit about these two uh, privacy bills that we're seeing get some movement uh, in the U.S. Congress. Do you think these bills are um, likely to survive? And also um, give us a kind of a high level look, if you would, at how, would th- how they would impact uh, reality today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I definitely cannot speculate as to whether um, they're going to survive or if they'll move forward. But I will say I'll give a little background on the um you know, where they're at and, and how how they've gotten some traction. So um, there are four, there are actually four children's privacy um, bills that were um, introduced or in some cases reintroduced in this Congress. Those are the Kids Online Safety Act, um, the, the COPPA 2.0. Um, there's also the Kids Act, and then there's the Kids Privacy Act. So COPPA 2.0 and COSA are the two that have gotten the furthest and they're getting a lot of attention. Um, they, on July 27th, a couple weeks ago, the Senate committee on commerce, science and transportation held a hearing on both of the bills and the two bills are marked up and ultimately advanced out of committee, which means they can advance for consideration by the full Senate. That doesn't necessarily mean they will. Um, that's especially true because there are multiple competing priorities in Congress right now and a very limited time left in this year's legislative calendar. So time will tell. Mm. Um, but both bills, I will say, were received pretty favorably, at least it seems so, um, during the July 27th hearing. Both garnered bipartisan support. Um, COSA received a unanimous roll call vote and COPPA 2.0 received a mostly favorable voice vote. Um the two bills are pretty different, um, and they're meant to be able to both, you know, if they both were enacted, they're, that's that would be okay. Um, the, the idea isn't for, so I'll, just for a little background, there's another, of the four bills, there are two that seek to amend COPPA. I feel like that's a little less clear how two bills that would seek to amend COPPA would work together. Um, but, you know, COPPA 2.0, that is kind of taking the, okay, let's give COPPA a facelift and um, update it. And then COSA is kind of taking, okay, let's prioritize kids' online safety. Um, so like I said, COPPA, as the name suggests, um, seeks to build upon the existing Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which was enacted back in 1998. Um, it's there's a lot going on in it, but I'll give a few highlights. One of the major things it would do would be to increase the age threshold um, that COPPA currently has, which is under 13 to under 17. That that means this whole group of minors whose information wasn't previously covered under COPPA would now receive you know heightened data protections, which would be really neat. 
Um, I think that that speaks to a growing trend we're seeing in the youth and education privacy space in that we're, we're realizing that a lot of the laws that exist might not apply to teens. Um, and teens are the ones who are, you know, arguably using the internet the most. Um, so that speaks to that trend. There's also in COPPA 2.0, there's, in addition to expanding the group of users whose data is covered, the legislation would also um, potentially expand the amount of data that's covered by providing a more um, comprehensive list of the type of data that would be considered personal information. And finally, COPPA 2.0 has some provisions about marketing that are notable. Um, for example, the bill explicitly prohibits the, with limited exceptions, the collection of student and, or excuse me, children and teens data for purposes of targeted marketing. And it would establish a youth privacy and marketing division at the FTC. Um, COSA, on the other hand, is a little different in that it's try it's not trying to amend the law we already have. Um, it's a really interesting bill and it's trying to tackle a lot of issues. Similar to COPPA 2.0, the age range would still would be under 17. Um, as the name of COSA, uh, in COSA would suggest, it's focused on online safety. And it was, high, it was heavily influenced by the recent discussions about the impact of social media on young people and their mental health. Um, we've seen a lot of that lately with President Biden's State of the Union address, as well as um, the Francis Hogan um, or Francis Haugen. Um, hearings earlier this or last year, last fall. Um, so, you know, it definitely comes kind of from that conversation, I think. Now, the bill. What did, uh, sorry, no, you don't have to tell me specifics, but I actually missed the State of the Union. Biden talked about children's privacy. There? Yeah. So Biden gave a little shout out to um, children's privacy, which is exciting. Um, he basically, you know, made this, gave this call for action about the need to protect children's data and also make sure that we're thinking about teens and their mental health. Very cool. You're like, I feel so seen. <laughs> I know. It was great. I was like, oh right? my gosh, you talked about privacy and you talked about my area of privacy. Thank you. Yes. That's amazing. Very cool. Shout out. So you mentioned that uh, I think COSA is the one that would establish uh a group at the FTC to specifically regulate children's privacy? So that's actually COPPA 2.0. Um, COPPA yeah. 2.0. Okay. So what, what can we bar, you know, so say that happens. That sounds great. Hopefully the FTC gets some resources to do it. As we know, the FTC mm -hmm. is, is always asking for. Um, barring that happening, though, what can you, do you have any predictions about how the FTC might be uh, approaching children's privacy in the near term. We've seen in the past uh, FTC take some serious action. You know, we saw the YouTube settlement, uh, I think a few years ago now, um, you know, other actions that they've taken uh, and kind of brought the hammer down uh, on some companies for missteps related to children. Do you think children's privacy will be um, a priority for cons FTC? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. And um, I think that there's a lot of reasons that that is a that is a fair prediction. So the regulatory stuff really interests me. And it's quite fascinating to see how um, the F some of the FTC um, 
cases and, and settlements we've seen recently um, went as it pertains to youth and education privacy. So earlier this year, we saw the Curbo International Settlement, um, and it was an agreement with the FTC. Curbo Weight Watchers International um, settled with the FTC um, in a COPPA case. And it was a notable case because it was the first time that algorithmic disgorgement was used as a penalty in a COPPA case. Um, it's all part of a settlement. It's also only the third time the FTC has used this sort of remedy period. But essentially, it, it would mean that the data derived from um, the algorithms that were, were used would also have to, would have to be destroyed. Um, and it's, it's a pretty hefty, um, it's a pretty hefty penalty. And I think it's really notable that it was used in, um, the third, in a third case by the FTC and it was used in a COPPA case. So you had Curbo and then later in May, the FTC held this open commission meeting where one of the main topics discussed was COPPA's application to education technology. Um, during this meeting, the commissioners voted unanimously, I may add, um, on a policy statement that essentially prioritizes COPPA enforcement um, and how it and how it um, relates to education technology. So I think it really was a signal to ed tech companies and um, and schools. Well, I mean, it, they don't really have. Okay, it, it was a it was a I think it was a signal to ed tech. Um, companies that the FTC is taking this seriously, that they need to make sure that they're complying with COPPA and um, that it's a top priority. All of the commissioners during that meeting talked about how kids' privacy is, you know, high on their list of, of priorities. Yeah. And anytime these days, as we know, we can get all the commissioners on the same page about something is a pretty big deal. Uh, Lastly, Lauren, before I let you go, um, I'm always really interested on this kids' privacy stuff because privacy as a topic in general, as anyone who works in privacy knows from going to family reunions or Thanksgiving, it can often be difficult to explain what privacy even is and what your line of work looks like. And so in that way, I feel like it's taken a long time for us to get this sort of like consumer, this swell of consumer pushback um, where now we're actually hearing uh various uh, speech makers say, you know, the time lawmakers say the time is now consumers are demanding privacy in America and that sort of thing. Um, when it comes to children's privacy, which is even more sort of niche, I wonder, do we have that same sort of consumer pushback? I'm just getting just your sense of this or your, you know, what's the vibe? Do we have a sense that consumers are fired up, you know, parents, teachers, what have you are really driving this? Or are these conversations mostly happening um, you know, among advocates and in think tanks, and somehow uh, a couple of you know compassionate lawmakers have sort of championed it, and that's why we're seeing action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think a lot of the push for heightened privacy protections does come from the public. I think it definitely extends beyond what's happening in you know academic legislative think tank e silos. Um, as we talked about earlier, you know, kids are spending more time than ever online and using emerging technologies that, you know, parents aren't familiar with, they didn't grow up with. And I think this creates a lot of questions and a strong desire to make sure that these young users are able to do this while still maintaining privacy over this information. Um, But the other piece I think that goes hand in hand with this is, you know, this 
attention to children and teen safety online. And while privacy and protecting children's information is certainly part of that, we're also talking about ensuring that kids and teens are able to have a positive, safe, and age-appropriate experience on the internet. Um, I think there's a heightened interest among parents and some parent advocacy groups um, that is resulting in some of this push too. So when you think about education privacy, and the pandemic, this is the first time for a lot of parents that they might have been sitting at the kitchen table working from home while their child was sitting across the kitchen table from them using an ed tech product because they were doing remote school. And so they really got a front row seat of some of these um, products that we're using in the classroom and just the and just got a little bit of a taste of what the role of technology is. Um, that also might have stirred up some questions. So I think... Um, you know, certainly there are a lot of conversations happening among policymakers. I think, obviously, it is a topic that's discussed in think tanks and and um, at the academic level. But I think it, it is very much driven by um, the public because we all know that we all, like you said, we all know that um, there has been this call generally from the public, like we want more privacy or, you know, privacy is an issue we need to be thinking about. And when I talked about earlier, you know, kids kind of being treated a little bit differently by the law and, re and needing certain um, special protections, I think that, you know, you can't have the conversation of um, general consumer privacy with all, without also thinking about how do we um, and, and what does that mean for these young and more impressionable users? Thanks for listening, y'all. Let me know what you thought about the episode by chiming in online, sharing it, rating it, reviewing it, whatever you fancy. And if you like this show, check out my new venture, the Privacy Beat newsletter. You can find it at teartruehq.com. See you next time.